Last week and this week, we're dealing with the topic of doubt. Now look, we believe something. There are ways in which what we believe stretches the imagination. It involves believing things that are outside of our experience, outside of what we think of as reality, certainly outside of normal, and there is no way that doubt doesn't sometimes affect many of us. In fact, statisticians will tell us, surveyors will tell us, that two out of three of us admit to having doubt regularly. They will also tell us that more than one out of four of us at any given time are experiencing doubt right now. So look around you. One out of four of you are experiencing doubt today. We covered the contours of it last week, what it is and what it isn't. We promised that today we were going to address it. We began doing that last week, and we're going to do so more thoroughly today. And I told you that I was going to actually give some reasons to believe today, and we're going to. So I'm warning you in advance, I'm going to talk fast, and I'm going to talk mostly at your head. I have prayed that God will drill down, and this will also impact our hearts as well, because our believing, our engaging with God involves all of that. It involves our head, our heart, and our will. It's all of us in with all that we know of God. But today, we're going to talk about some reasons to believe in God, because I do not believe that you have to leave your intellect at the door when you come into faith. You bring it with you. So, before we do that, I want to read an email that somebody sent me after the sermon last week. You did a great job describing doubt today and how you get there. I'm a bit concerned, though, because you mentioned it being dangerous and not a place you want to stay. So last week we said, hey, when you doubt, you're in good company, including the saints of the Bible. But you're not in a good place, so you need to address it. This person said, I love this analogy, this person said, I realize that I've accepted doubt the way I've accepted my knee injury. I limp sometimes. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. Walking along, whammy, your knee gives out from underneath you, and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot it was there, but it's always there. It always is. Then followed up. I do have faith, I trust in God, and that he will never leave me, but there has just been too much meaning there's been too much trauma, too many personal hits in my life. You ever feel that way? Because I do. Here's what we said last week about doubt. We said five things. We said first, doubt is common. Secondly, we said doubt is not reserved for religious belief. We sometimes think that our faith is somehow weaker or less rational because you doubt it and you don't doubt knowledge. But there is no category of knowledge that isn't doubted. Third thing we said is the presence of doubt does not mean that you don't have faith. Doubt's not the opposite of faith. Fourth thing we said is doubt is dangerous. Even though it's common, it's dangerous. And the fifth thing we said is doubt must be addressed. We made one point last week toward addressing doubt, and we said we were going to pick it up right there this week. We said we were going to address doubt, and we are. So today I'm going to give you six helpful hints in dealing with your doubt. Now, this isn't prescriptive. Is it isn't meant to be the Bible doesn't give us a prescription. These helpful hints are meant to be helpful hints. We're going to spend most of our time on helpful hint number five and helpful hint number six. So we're going to kind of race through the first four, but it doesn't mean that they're unimportant. I wish we had a week on each of these. So six helpful hints in dealing with doubt. Helpful hint number one, pray for spiritual sight. This is where we ended last week. Pray for spiritual sight. 
Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. Listen to what he says. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation because what we believe doesn't occur to us because we're smart or because we're clever. What we believe occurs to us because God shows it to us. We need spiritual sight so that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's why we sing that song, Open Up Our Eyes. We have a couple of worship songs at Gateway that we sing that are on this vein. In order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Because when we know those things, doubt disappears. A quick story years ago when my wife Diane, those of you who are new, by the way, thanks for coming. My name's Ed, and, and I'm one of the pastors here. And my wife Diane and I, before moving to Northern Virginia and starting Gateway 21 years ago, I pastored a church in Boston, in the uh, inner city in the Boston area. And we got asked by a local church here to come to this area and plant a church, a great church, very large mission-minded church in Alexandria, Virginia, First Baptist Church. And they had a vision for planting starting from scratch, five new churches in the 90s and early 2000s. And this church was so gracious, they were going to fund these churches. So giving them a little money and also paying a pastor's salary full-time for three years. I'd never heard of a model like this. And an additional two years paying half-time. And they would offer accounting help and other kind of help that this, the young startup church would need. So they approached me and said, would you come plant a church in Northern Virginia? And I, you know, I'm a deeply spiritual, God-honoring guy. And I said, absolutely not. I hate Washington, D.C. We go through there every year on our way for vacation. I would never want to live there. And eventually, we ended up here. So we started the church here. But in the process of starting, we initially are attending the church in Alexandria. And our second Sunday there, uh, the pastor announces that he's leaving. He gives the church two weeks notice, surprise to us. And I didn't know if the vision left with him and what in the world are we doing here. And so in the process, they asked me if I would spend a few months being their interim communicator. So on Sunday mornings in this church, I was the communicator. And this is a really great but pretty traditional church. So imagine me in a traditional setting. It was difficult. But anyway, so I'm communicating there for several months and it comes time for Easter Sunday and I'm preparing my sermon and I've got that's good stuff. I'm talking about, I don't know, the resurrection of Jesus or something like that. And we're getting ready for Easter, and I'm really, I'm, it's going to be good. But I realized that somebody had recommended, because of stuff that I was going through, somebody recommended that I read this book called Disappointment with God by a guy named Philip Yancey. It's a beautifully written book. And I'm reading this book, and I began to realize I'm disappointed with God, deeply so. I feel like he let me down. Another time you'll hear how and why, but I'm really disappointed and I can't handle it. And weirdly, as the week goes on, it gets worse and worse. I'm getting closer to figuring out what I'm going to say in my sermon and I'm getting further away from being able to actually say it. Well, I wasn't saying all this to Diane because I, you know, I thought, ah, oh, this is going to go away. I mean, after all, I have to communicate on Sunday, and it's Easter, and everybody's going to be there all dressed up. They did that in this church, suit and tie. So by the time we get to Saturday, it's horrible. It's real. I can't take it. I am profoundly disappointed with God, and I don't know what to do with it. Saturday night, Diane and I are going to bed. How you doing? 
well, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she thinks, yeah, I know. Well, the, this is good. No, I don't think I can communicate my message tomorrow. Wait, what? It's going to embarrass me and my family and the boys, and what are you doing? I don't know what to do. She prays for me. We try to go to sleep. They have an Easter sunrise service at this church, so I woke up really early. Diane rolls over in bed. She's got to get our children ready. Our boys were little then. I went down without her. She rolls over. She says, what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. What are you talking about? So I drive on my way to Alexandria. I honestly don't know what I'm going to do. And it's not that emotional. The sun peaks up, just the edge of it over the horizon. I don't know why, but I saw, I realized, I actually believe this. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because of that, everything has changed. Everything is different. Everything. Reality as we know it. We did the sunrise service. We go to the first service that morning. The place is packed. Everybody's in their suit and tie. Me too. And I'm on the stage. This is one of those churches. Some of you have been to these old school churches. They have the big throne chairs up on the, right? Up on the stage where the special people sit. So... I'm sitting in my throne, and Diane, and Diane comes in, she's sitting in the front, she looks up at me anxiously, been praying for you, and then, and, and then she says, what are you going to do? And I, said, and I looked at her and said, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that was her reaction too. So I didn't know. I got up to preach, 30 seconds of silence. This is not what you do on Easter Sunday morning. Awkward enough that the crowd's beginning to think, come on, preacher boy, you're supposed to say something. So I said, hey, listen, this is what I was going to say today. And I preached my sermon in six minutes, the entire thing. I was going to do this, then I had this illustration, I was going to tell this, and you were going to love it. And then I was going to make this point, it was going to be awesome. And I went through it really, really fast, and then I finished, and I said, that's what I was going to do, but I can't do that today. Because I'm disappointed with God. I talked a little bit about my disappointment and why. And then I talked about how even in the midst of disappointment, he gives us spiritual sight. In fact, that's what this day is all about. I ended with an illustration. This is how I know this is where all of us live. At the end of the service for the day, again, pretty traditional church, very buttoned up. Minister of music comes up, he leads us in a final hymn, and he says, y'all go, time for the second service to come in, except he does it much more professionally and politely than that. Well, before he comes up, pray, I look up and I say, listen, if there are any of you today who feel disappointed with God, why don't you come down front and let's pray? Dozens of people. There might have been hundreds. It was a much larger room than this, a broader stage. The front of the room was full of people. The minister of music comes up on the stage and says, what do I do now? <laughs> do what you do, man. Lead us in worship. We went about 10 minutes over. Second service, people were at the door. We ended. First service leaves. It's chaos. Second service comes in. People are still here up front. After a while, they leave. Associate pastor comes up to me and he says, what in the world happened? <laughs> I said, I don't know. But I did know. Spiritual sight. Pray for spiritual sight. You need it. I'm going to give you an opportunity today to do that. 
We're going to have some people over here praying for you at the end. And don't forget this moment. Because God is stirring in some of you right now. I'm going to talk to your head for a while now, but I don't want you to forget this moment. All right, let's speed up. Number two, second way to deal with doubt is analyze what kind of doubt you're experiencing. This doesn't solve our doubt, it doesn't make it go away, but analyzing our doubt can help us know how to deal with it. First of all, it's important in analyzing our doubt to identify where doubt lives. I love that phrase. Somebody came up to me last week after the message and said, doubt can live in a number of different places. It, it can be doubt of ourselves, it can be doubt of our family, it can be doubt of church, it can be doubt of God. You need to know that often doubt in all of those other places, is really ultimately doubt of God. Not always, but it often is. But identify where your doubt lives. Secondly, it's helpful to know the source of doubt. Is it emotional crisis or is it intellectual crisis? It's usually one of those two. If it's emotional, then is it related to depression perhaps or is it related to your circumstances? So identify the source. Analyze what kind of doubt you're experiencing. The third helpful hint in dealing with doubt is ask for help. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness. Here's the thing. Evidently, our unruly emotions, our depression, and our doubt are a community project. Evidently, we can't deal with those things alone. That's why once a week, some of you don't realize we do this every week, but once a week we gather here on Sunday mornings because dealing with this is a community project. Ask for help. Fourth, a fourth helpful hint in dealing with your doubts is doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Here's what I mean. We would have far fewer doubts if we would ask our doubts to stand up to the same scrutiny as our beliefs. It's easy to take pot shots, but ask your doubt to answer questions. In other words, the way we sometimes question our faith, how could that be? I've never seen anything like that. Why didn't this happen? Why didn't it happen that way if all of this is true? If we submitted our doubts to the same degree of questioning, we'd find that they often don't stand up as well as we fear. I want to give you a weird related idea, first cousin to that, but you know something that causes many of us to question our faith is the fact that most really smart people are not believers. Doesn't that cause you to doubt sometimes? You see one of those specials on television, brilliant guy with a British accent, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, why doesn't he believe? And he shoots holes in our faith. I know it does for some of us, but is that really true? I want you to question that. Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. He's a pretty smart guy. And I like what Dr. Willard said about this. I've got to give you this quote. We live in a culture, he says, that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that a skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can be almost as stupid as a cabbage, but as long as you doubt, you give the appearance of intelligence. I don't know that it's true that smart people don't believe. In fact, we've got a number of smart people here at Gateway really smart, who fully buy in. Many don't believe, but many do. Years ago, Diane and I had uh, good friends with a young son who, just some of you know this because you have this kid. God's spirit got hold of this young boy's heart when he was really young. He was taking piano lessons when he was a little kid. And I mean, it's, this is the older guy now. He's probably late 30s or early 40s. And he's walking with Christ today. He's, he started a nonprofit to help feed the world. He's taking piano lessons 
And one Easter Sunday, I remember, he, he wanted to go in and listen to his dad preach. His dad was the pastor. He wanted to go in and listen to his dad preach. And he's just, his heart got captured by this Easter Sunday message. And Jesus rose from the dead. And he's feeling like, the whole world needs to hear about this, Mom. Yes, they do. And so they started talking about different people. And his mom would say, well, you know, I don't know, you know where they are. Well, I need to tell them. Well, calm down, Will. So he asked one time about the piano teacher. How about Miss So-and-so? Mm, I, you know, I don't really think she's a Christ follower. I, I don't know. So wheels are turning in Will's mind. A couple of days later, they have a piano lesson. Piano teacher shows up. His mom's in the kitchen doing dishes. All of a sudden, the piano stops. Mom gets a little nervous. She backs toward the room. Piano teacher doesn't say anything for a few minutes. And then she says something like, Will, are you okay? And Will looked at the piano teacher and said, who do you think rolled that stone away? <laughs> we need to ask our doubts to answer the same kind of questions that we ask of our faith. Fifth, let's camp out here for a minute. I'm going to talk fast, so stay with me. Pursue the truth. Do not leave your intellect at the door when you come to faith. Pursue the truth. It can stand up to it. I'm going to give you today three clues under pursuing the truth for believing in God. These are not foolproof. Skeptics argue against these vigorously, but these are profound. They're not the only proofs for the existence of God, but in my view, these are the strongest. I'm going to give you three clues. Clue number one, I'm going to illustrate and then explain it to you, and I'm going to talk fast. Clue number one is our finely tuned universe. Here's the illustration. When I first met Diane, my wife, I learned the meaning of the word hospitality. My mother was not very hospitable. Diane's mother, exactly the opposite. If you know my wife, sweetness is a force of nature in her. She has four other sisters. They're all the same. And every environment you go in where they've been, they have created space just for you. I couldn't believe it. First times that I show up to her house after we're married, not only is everything nice and all put together, it's exactly what I wanted. There's something on my pillow for me. The meals are designed for me. What are you doing? Some have argued that the universe has offered just that kind of welcome for human beings. Our world is perfectly designed to have allowed for creatures exactly like us to appear at exactly this point in the life of the universe. Think of the physics which govern the world that welcomes us. The speed of light, the constant of gravity, the strength of the weak and strong forces within the atom, all of these are calibrated to within very, very narrow limits and in exactly the right relationship to one another to allow our universe to hold together and to support the conditions which would support us. One author called this a cosmic welcome mat. Francis Collins is a physician and an American geneticist who led the Human Genome Project for the National Institute of Health. I like the way Dr. Collins put it in his book, Language to God, and I'm going to quote this. Listen, quote, When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. That there would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Stephen Hawking, the famous cosmologist and atheist, by the way, has said, quote, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. End quote. 
Now, this wasn't a statement of belief from Dr. Hawking. He eventually has other alternate explanations, but it was a reluctant acknowledgement that the universe is very, very finely tuned, extraordinarily so, in exactly the way we need it to be. So much so that it sure looks like somebody planned it. This is not definitive proof that God exists, but it makes a very compelling case for the possibility. Helpful hint, clue number two. The presence of something. Why should there be anything? All right, if you've ever read anything by one of these, you know, popular uh, theoretical physicists and actually tried to stay awake, you know that they know that they are constantly treading on questions of theology. They know it. Many of them admittedly don't believe in God, but they know that they are asking questions that rub up against belief in something like God, especially the big question of where it all came from. I suppose some of them would say that given enough time, science will be able to answer the big question. By the way, isn't that just faith in science? But many would acknowledge that we can't ever know what started the universe and why it ended up delivering something like us. It's just a mystery. Again, Stephen Hawking put it like this. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. So let's assume for a moment that modern science is correct in saying that the universe began with a Big Bang. That would mean that the universe came into existence with an explosion that sent pieces of matter flying in all directions at an enormous rate. We don't need to argue about the idea of the Big Bang this morning. First of all, I'm not smart enough to argue about it. And secondly, the idea doesn't really contradict Christianity in any way. But if the Big Bang concept is correct, that still doesn't answer the big question, does it? Where did the matter that blew up the substance of the Big Bang come from? I mean, what blew up? And who pushed the blow this thing up right now button? Why did anything happen? And how in the world did it happen in such a way that eventuated in us? Look, everything in our experience is contingent. That means everything is caused by something else. And taken as a whole, the entire universe is a collection of causes that lead to effects, which then become causes of yet further effects. That makes sense. In other words, nothing happens without something happening to make it happen. That's just the way our universe works. So everything that happens is contingent on other things happening to make it happen. It seems unavoidably logical, therefore, to assume that the whole universe had to come from some initial cause. Something had to happen to make everything then happen. We know that the universe itself is not infinite. So at some point, now most believed to be 14 billion years ago, the universe itself was caused. But by what? Think of the kind of force it would take to hurl the entire universe into motion. What force could have done that? This is not a force to be trifled with, by the way. Of course, even if we admit that the most logical answer to that big question is that some really, really powerful force outside of the universe itself caused the Big Bang, even if we admit that, it doesn't necessarily mean that that force is a personal God. But I have to say, he presents a very good candidate. Clue number two, the presence of something. Clue number three, the regularity of nature. You've never thought of this one, but nor have I, but hang with me. This is bigger than you think. You've heard the term, the laws of nature. 
The term law is used in that phrase because it's believed that nature always operates according to the same patterns. At every point in time and at every point in space, water always freezes at zero degrees Celsius. Bodies of mass always attract one another. Every action always causes an equal and opposite reaction, etc. These operations have always been true both throughout knowable history and in every direction of the known universe. This is so completely and thoroughly the case that Albert Einstein once said, God does not play with dice, meaning that things in nature are not random. They're not even unexpected. Nature operates by certain immutable laws. But why? Why should this be the case? Certainly most of us are not troubled by this. We don't even think about it. But philosophers do. They've obviously got too much time on their hands. I like the way Tim Keller explains this. Tim Keller explains it like this. He says, quote, David Hume and Bertrand Russell, philosophers, as good secular men, were troubled by the fact that we haven't got the slightest idea of why nature operates with regularity. And moreover, we haven't the slightest rational justification for assuming it will continue to do so tomorrow. If someone were to say, well, the future has always been like the past in the past, Hume and Russell would respond that you're assuming the very thing you're trying to establish. All right. Don't let your eyes glaze over yet. Again, this is bigger than you think. Let me put it like this. Up to this point, I suspect all of us have lived our lives with the baseline, unexamined assumption that nature will continue to operate as it always has. I will not get out of the shower and somehow float away into space. If I raise the temperature of water in, my, in a pot to 100 degrees Celsius, I can boil an egg. And if I push the front door open, it will not suddenly disappear and evaporate. And so far, these assumptions have served us well and have proved very reliable, but David Hume and Bertrand Russell are right. These assumptions are really articles of faith. We don't know why these things never change. We just believe they won't. Admittedly, our faith is based on a vast amount of experience, but we have to admit we have no proof for it and no explanation of it. We have no rational explanation for why nature does not change the way it operates. Well, maybe there is one rational explanation. Can you see how a personal God who acts with unimaginable force both in creating and in sustaining the universe does present a viable explanation for why nature acts consistently over time and space? I'm going to read you from Psalm 147, 4 and 5. I'm sorry I don't have this on the screen. I want you to hear this. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. It offers a poetic explanation of what we're talking about. He says, the psalmist says, he determines God. He determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. Remember that. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The notion that God calls something by name is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying he exercises authority over it. He controls that thing. Now there are certainly objections to this observation. The skeptic may say, give science enough time and it will discover why the laws of nature continue to operate just as they've always done. There's no reason to assert God here, but at the risk of beating a dead horse, isn't this just another statement of faith by the skeptic? Clue number one, our finely tuned universe. Clue number two, the presence of something. Clue number three, the regularity of nature. These clues do not prove God. They've been argued against by the skeptics, but these clues do make it clear that you don't have to leave your brain at the door. The reality of an almighty God does perfectly satisfy all of the unknown variables in our vast, mysterious universe. So one response to doubt is to pursue the truth. Now, I'm not going to list ways 
to pursue the truth resources that will help in this area. There are too many to name, and you have access to Google. But, I mean, quickly, I would commend the work of, you don't need to remember this, you can Google this again, but I would commend the work of Norman Geisler or Ravi Zacharias, also the debates of Dr. William Lane, along with Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and The Reason for God by Tim Keller and many others. There are some that are more academic than this. Google will be your friend. If you do that, you will stumble into things that cause you to doubt. Don't worry. Just pursue the truth. The truth is far more substantial and defensible than you think. Sixth, oppose negativity and feed faith. It's an old truth, but it's wise one nonetheless. Do you know what grows in our lives? What we feed. So feed your faith. This is why... The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says to the Philippians, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Discipline your minds. I'm going to, at the risk of boring you to tears, so if you miss everything else, don't miss this. This is a big one. So get ready. Just make sure we're all engaged here for a minute. Because I'm going to read you several paragraphs from a really boring article from the magazine Christianity Today. It's written by a Christian psychologist. And he's writing about a, a model for dealing with what he calls unruly behavior. I won't give you all of his science. The article had a bunch of science in it. I didn't understand all of it. But it gives you this model and he talks about kind of how it applies to the Christian faith. And this is good. I want you to hear this. I'm going to quote now from the article. It's been mentioned that distraught emotional states such as anxiety or depression often plague the emotional doubter. Among the many current psychological models for treating such emotions, secular psychologist Albert Ellis's ABC technique is certainly among the best known and most influential. It's among secular uh, therapists now. In common with most other cognitive behavioral strategies, it emphasizes that proper reasoning techniques should take precedence in dealing with emotional stress. This general theory and its techniques have been confirmed by testing in hundreds of studies. You don't remember, need to remember all that, but get this next part. For example, and now he kind of lays out the parameters of how this ABC technique works, the thinking behind it, the framework for it. For example, neither one's genetics, life events, calamities, or malicious acts of others, the A's of life, are the chief cause of unruly emotions. Pause and get that. The things that happen to us, the stuff, our genetics, the malicious actions of others, those are not the primary cause of our unruly emotions. He goes on. Rather, the major culprit is what we believe and what we tell ourselves about such intrusions into our life, the bees. So the real culprit behind our doubt Behind our depression, our anxiety, is what we tell ourselves about the things that intrude upon our lives. In other words, our own thoughts, I'm back to the article now. In other words, our own thoughts or words actually cause the majority of our worst suffering. Therefore, don't miss this principle. Therefore, our improper beliefs, more to the point, the misbeliefs, lies, or cognitive distortions, we tell ourselves these are what must be addressed in order to experience greater emotional peace and less dissatisfaction in life. 
through the highly influential exercise of disputing and replacing these misrepresentations, one may change the consequences, the C's, and gain substantial relief from unwanted emotional interruptions. This is what we do every Sunday morning. This is the exercise you're engaged in every Sunday morning. We come here and replace the misplaced thoughts with belief about God. We sing about it, we pray it, and then we talk about it. We're exercising ABC technique, recognizing that the the real problem behind our unruly emotions is almost always the things that we tell ourselves about the intrusions in our life and not the intrusions themselves. Someone sent me a devotional this week by Lisa Turkhurst. Some of you know her name. She's a beautiful writer. She said this in the devotion, what makes faith fall apart isn't doubt. It's being too certain of the wrong things. I'm going to skip to the end. This is what the psalmist does in Psalm 42 and 43. I want you to see this. We're not going to go through all of Psalm 42 and 43. We're just going to go through the first six verses. But in the original, when it was originally written, Psalm 42 and 43 in our Bibles was originally one song. Go home this afternoon and read it. You'll see the refrain, the chorus repeats itself. From Psalm 42, it repeats itself in Psalm 43. And I want you to hear what's at work here. I want you to hear how the psalmist recognizes the, the real source and how he operates with this kind of replacement, how he opposes negativity and how he feeds faith. He does work with his own soul. So he starts out by saying, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Some of you have been around church for a long time. You know, there are three or four old worship songs that have this phrase in it that are these really sweet, you know, worship songs. I I long for you, God. This is not a sweet song. The psalmist here is not crying out sweetly to God. He's crying out in despair and doubt. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where's your God? He's going to repeat this later in the psalm. But listen to how he does work with his own soul. But these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. And this is what you and I do. No, 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 no. I remember. I'm on my way to Alexandria, and I see the sun, and suddenly I remember those times that God has spoken to me. I remember those times of of dealing with whether or not the resurrection is true, and it is, and I believe it. I remember it. I remember those times when I was alone reading my Bible, or, or I was with a group of people singing, or I was with a small group of people. We were talking about life, and something happened in me. I remember. He goes on. Why, my soul? Are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. The psalmist does not roll over and surrender to his despair. The psalmist does work with his own soul. And some of you need to do that this morning. You remember where we started? I told you I was going to give you an opportunity, and I'm going to. When we're done, 
Do not leave today if you have unsettled work with God. If you have doubts that you cannot wrestle to the mat. If you have unruly emotion that you cannot get to the bottom of, you need to go ask somebody for prayer. Over here to my right, your left, there are going to be some people over there ready to pray with you. Go. Ask for help. Don't roll over and surrender to doubt. Address it. When you doubt, you're in good company. But look, you're not in a good place. It's dangerous. It's not a destination. It can make us stronger if we address it and deal with it. Deal with your doubt. Pray for spiritual sight. Analyze what kind of doubt you're experiencing. Ask for help. Doubt your doubts. Pursue the truth. Oppose negativity. Feed faith. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what you have spoken into each of our lives, but I know you've spoken to many of us. I just pray that you would be clear about it and that you would seal it, that you would protect what you've said. We brought as many different menus of emotion in with us today as there are people. And somehow, we seriously believe that you are able to take all of that in, that you're able to, you get that about each of us. We declare this morning that you are the force that caused the universe. You called it into being and you directed each step and created it. We declare this morning that you sustain it. And God, assist us this morning. Those of us who have grown weak, we pray that you will strengthen us as we say to our own soul, put your hope in God. You're our Savior. We trust you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you, if you need prayer today, don't leave here without it. There'll be a group of people right over here who are ready to pray for you. So come and let them know how to pray. And we'll pray. Thank you for coming. Remember that to love your neighbor and know that God is crazy about you. Thank you.